Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. I don't know if you guys realize, but they moved the pulpit back so I could stand on this last step here. I think they do that for Butch too, I could be wrong. So there's three topics that uh, we've been discussing. The first one is God is love. The second is God is light. And when Tripp originally called to see if I'd uh, be willing to speak and on what topic I'd like to speak on, I, I told him I'd pray about it, and I hung up the phone and jokingly told my wife, I don't know what I want to speak on, but I know what I don't want to speak on. And it was, in fact, this subject. Um, now, the first reason for my hesitancy on this subject is, is that there is a lot to this text. There is, there is a lot here. And in all honesty, for those of you that, that have been coming for a while, Trip could make a serious, serious series on this subject. Um, I think actually this is the third detour. I don't know if you guys know, we had a, a, a series going on um, the life and times of Christ, and then we, we switched over to another series, which was the core body of Christ, and then we put that on hold. So this is the, the third hold that we've been on. Um, secondly, this is a subject that most people have very strong feelings about, very strong convictions, a lot of uh, uh, opinion about, and... Um, there's a lot debated on this topic. Uh, the final reason is, in fact, one and the same with what most excites me about this topic. Despite how easy it is to feel as though we are a part of each other's lives, our world, in reality, our worlds are very intimate. They're a very personal existence. So please keep in mind, as we approach this topic, that it's, it's not out of a heart or jud- of judgment or of speculation, but out of a desire for us to join together in our pursuit of God. Though the book of 1 John is small, there is a lot in here. And, and to really understand what John is speaking about, we have to look at the writer, at where he's coming from and where he's hoping to get. Please understand that, that these words are the inspired word of God. He breathed them into John. But the author is a man who deeply and loved greatly the Son of God. John is often referred to as the beloved or the one whom Jesus loved. And it would be an understatement to say that John merely loved God or Jesus. See, John was coming from a place where he was actually walking with Jesus. He was actually talking. He could reach out and touch him. He knew what Jesus smelled like. That's the kind of personal relationship that John had with Jesus. He knew well what it meant to wait on Jesus. He knew well what it meant to remain. He knew well what it meant to be in the presence of his beloved. And as we read John, we can see his desire to open our eyes, to show us what a life of love to God can truly be. In the first few chapters of John, we see him explaining the great love God has for us. We see how that love has the power to transform our lives. 
to change us, to purchase for us a place beyond this earth. John then goes on to describe God as a God of light. And he does this as he writes, to make our joy complete, to offer us a better way than what we would have had without him, to bring us out of our darkness into his light. And in the midst of all of this, he pauses to write some of the most important, crucial, life-giving words in Scripture. I grew up in the church where there were a lot of rules, there were a lot of regulations. And being raised in that church, my parents were constantly trying to discover a balance between the laws of Christ and the love of Christ. In fact, John is writing to a people facing this same challenge. But instead of approaching their arguments head-on and attempting to change their beliefs from a simply analytical perspective, John brings us back to the heart of it and shows us a different way, the best way, the only way. Though John is doing this from a heart of love and from a heart of kindness, make no mistake, he is in no way dancing around the truth or approaching this subject lightly. One way we see this is that he starts with a command. If you have your Bibles, would you open them and turn to 1 John? Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. I think they'll have it up. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It says this, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. See, this command demands that we reject the things of this world that do not lead us to God or practice of his truth. And this sounds easy enough to know, but we all, we all know it's easier said than done, yeah? For it entails recognizing and condemning sin and all unrighteousness. I spoke of the balance between love and law, and far too often we find ourselves on one side or the other. We can far too easily fall prey to an arrogant or judgmental attitude. But on the other hand, we can find ourselves letting sinful things go unnoticed in our attempt to love and accept people as they are. However, true love means that we must expose sin. For in exposing sin, we become channels of God's truth. We become channels for God's light, for his love enabling others to do the same. But let us not forget that judgment starts at home. Judgment starts with us. As far as the subject of this text, John is not beating around the bush. If you love God, you cannot love the world. If you love the world, you cannot love God. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
in essence, love for the world will always push out any love for God. At the risk of being too blunt, if you love the world, you will hate God. If you love God, you will hate the world. You cannot have both. You cannot serve two masters, or you will hold to one and despise the other. And this part of it has stuck so much with me because as Christians, how many times have we become upset or even disillusioned, even despised God for not giving us the things this world has to offer? We see the next, the person next to us easy breezy through fields of gold, skipping along, and it's dog-eat-dog or bottom-of-the-barrel for us. We have to fight tooth and nail just for table scraps. It's easy to feel that way. It's easy to put the blame on God when our life in this world isn't as we think it should be. We have to be so careful that our focus remains where it must. For if we allow it to go unchecked, soon our hearts will become hardened to that of the Father. And who was once our first love will be the one we despise the most. Thankfully, the same holds true in reverse. As we pursue God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, the things of this world will become despicable to us, for they only serve to hinder us in our pursuit of him. And as I was reading this, I said, but but what about the most one of the most famous passages of all time, 1 John, or John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. See, this word world here in the Greek is, is actually cosmos. And John uses it in a variety of different ways. First, it can refer to the world which God created or the realm where one exists. Secondly, it can refer to those who inhabit the world. And we see through all of Scripture God's intense love for those inhabitants. Though people's response to that love is often mixed. Thirdly, it can be used negatively, designating those who reject or ignore God. They live without regard for God or his authority. This is seen in 1 John 4, 4, where John states, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So how do we know what world John is talking about here in verse 15? The answer to that is found in verse 16, where John describes that which is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. In verse 17, John says, the world is passing away and also its lust. This word lust in the Greek is epithemia and refers to a longing for that which is forbidden. So we can know that John is speaking of the world in its negative sense. What we must remember is that the world is not a passive entity, but a rival for the affections, for the allegiance of every heart. The world is not a passive entity. Verse 17a says, the world is passing away in its lusts. How would our lives change if we knew that everything on this earth was going to burn? Well, guess what? 
seems like every time I turn on the news, another cruise ship is going down or is about to. Would you get on that ship if you knew it was sinking? So why do we go after that which we know will pass away? If what we go after is passing away, if what we go after goes to death, what do we get when we get it? Why go after that which is not eternal? But the one who does the will of God abides forever. This is one of my favorite parts. This offers so much promise. The word abide here in the Greek is meno, a verb which means to stay in a given place, state, relation, or expectancy, to abide, continue, dwell, endure, be present, remain, stand. And this gets exciting here. This word meno is also an intensive verb, which means by definition it goes beyond face value. An example would be if if two preschool children were to say to each other, I love you. To them, that wouldn't mean much. But if those same two children were to grow up and get married, that word love would now come to mean so much more to them. It would carry so much more depth because the two would fully be able to comprehend what that word actually meant. So when John says we abide with him forever, He speaks of something we cannot even comprehend. Remember the definition of of that word, to stay in a place of relation or expectancy, a place that when the world is forsaken will only continue to grow and fulfill? That's going to be beyond our wildest dreams and desires. It's going to go beyond what we can comprehend now. And I think... So often, that's really what the world is trying to sell, fulfillment. If you just have this, you'll be fulfilled. If you just obtain this or go after that, the hole inside you will be filled. The pain inside won't hurt nearly as much if you just get this one more thing. But the reason why the world has been so successful at continuing to sell continuing to sell us its wares is that it never does what it says it's actually going to do. It's a product that oversells and under delivers. But Jesus, but Jesus, go after him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you can't even know the eternal life of abundance and fulfillment you will experience. Now, we all know that we are saved by what? Faith. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But what is belief in Christ without love for Christ? Here John is saying that love is the path to eternal life, to abiding forever. So what's the relationship between faith and love? Can you trust in Christ but not love him? Can you love him but not trust in him? The issue in this text is love for God or love for the world. And the promise is death with the world or abiding now and forever. Eternal life with God. From the same author of our study today, he states a few chapters over in 1 John 5.13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. 
So again, what's the connection between belief and life? When John says that not loving the world, but loving God so much that we do his will is what leads to eternal life, we see that the two become inseparable, belief and love. Belief for God and a world-forsaking love for God are both paths to eternal life because they are one and the same. In John 5, 42 through 44, Jesus is confronting the Jewish leaders. They don't believe in him, and he's confronting them with this, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? In essence, they didn't receive, they didn't believe in Jesus because they did not love Jesus. They were more concerned with the glories of men, the love of the world, than with the glory of God. Where there is no love for God, there is no belief. Where there is no love for God, there is no saving faith. Where there is no love for God, there is no eternal life. That's why John can take love for God and trust for God and treat them as the same one way to salvation. 1 John 5, 3 through 4. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. It is our love for God that overcomes disobedience. It is our love for God that makes his commandments a joy to follow rather than a burden. Jacob worked day in and day out for seven years for the opportunity to marry Rachel. And it says they were as a few days to him because of his intense love for her. Love for God makes his service a joy. Love for God overcomes any and every worldly Seduction. John goes on in verse 4 to say the same thing but speaks of faith instead of love. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. It is faith that makes obedience a joy, it is faith that overcomes. There is one way to life and life everlasting the way of faith which loves God. And the way of love which trusts God. They are not and cannot be separated. In verse 17, John is trying to show us that loving God and hating the world is not optional. It is a must. It is not icing on the cake. It is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. It must be our number one priority. It must be our most important goal. It must be the only thing in life that we pursue, for nothing is more crucial. Nothing is more life-giving, is more fulfilling, is more awe-striking than experiencing love for God with every fiber of our being. Love for God is the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. So then what is love of the world? Let's go back to verse 16. There are three things listed here. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
Firstly, the lust of the flesh consists of what we desire physically or that which we can accomplish or pursue in our own flesh. Flesh here refers to the human realm apart from God. It must be reborn through the power of the Holy Spirit or it remains lifeless and dead. Just as the human body requires breath to survive, our flesh requires the Holy Spirit to survive eternally. Hence, the lust of the flesh is the desires that come from the flesh or from human striving. This means desire born by a world unaware or untouched by God. Desires shaped entirely by our own impulses and not from God. Any attitude, action, or motive that makes the individual and not God the center and measure of the universe reeks of the world. As flesh is the source of our lust in the first statement, so what we see is the source in the next statement. Another way to say this would be desire that comes from that which we see. These desires come not from the insight that God gives us, but are shaped by the world in its ignorance and opposition to God. The world lusts for what it sees, not for what God gives eyes to. This last part here, this pride of life. What is it talking about when it says this pride of life? This last word, life, here is from the Greek word bios, which literally means your present state of existence or your livelihood. It is a pride in your good life, your means of living. It's a pride of self-reliance or self-sufficiency. It's seeking our own glory and not the glory of God. It loves the world instead of loving God. All these things stemming out of our pride for life, our self-sufficiency, they all go down. They, they all go down to a specific end. And that end is death. You see, the world is driven by these two main things, a selfish passion for pleasure and a sinful pride in possession. No matter the obvious depravity, no matter the obvious evil of what we're going after, or how good something may seem, if it's not of God, it's of the world. If it's not glorifying to God, what we go after becomes an idol. And if you've read to the, through to the end of 1 John, you'll see that it ends this entire book with that one simple admonishment. Keep yourselves from idols. In fact, the first of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. When we pursue the things of the, girl, of the world, we make idols of those things. The desires of our heart make clear to us the God we serve. It's no wonder that anything in this world is not of God, or, or it's no wonder that anything in this world not of God robs our heart of love for him. The world is always telling us that he is not enough. The world says we must possess this thing to give us true happiness or fulfillment. And if we can't have it, it fills us with a passion to get it. And that fast, our pursuit changes from the life that Christ offers to the death the world offers. 
Now, if you're like me, you are going to immediately point to the good things in life as an argument. Should I not want dinner? Should I not want a wife and kids? What about a job? What about my health? Shouldn't I want health? I mean, if you haven't got your health, then you haven't got anything. To that, Scripture offers a simple answer. No. Unless it is a desire for God, it is a selfish desire and places you and me as Lord of our lives. Now, hang with me here. If we put those things in perspective, if we desire food for his sustenance to further his kingdom, if we desire family to show us the love he has for us, if we desire health to remain faithful in the service of his kingdom here on earth, we keep God the object of our pursuit. Do we have an eye for God in everything that we pursue? Is there a passion for Christ in every earthly pursuit? Watchman Nee said, it is difficult to estimate how much of the world's philosophy, ethics, knowledge, research, and science flow from the powers of darkness. But of one point, we are certain all argument and proud obstacles against the knowledge of God are the fortress of the enemy. It's not a question of pursuing the things of the world, but rather one pursuing the things of Christ. It's not a question of pursuing the things of the world, but of pursuing the things of Christ. Romans 12, 1 through 2, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. St. Augustine captures this beautifully when he said, He loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. In other words, if we love the things of this world without loving them for his sake, we have but little love for Christ. Now this may sound extreme. And to that I can say this. The scriptures are filled with people doing extreme things, living extreme lives, pursuing an extreme God. With great sacrifice comes great reward. Again, Watchman Nee, gaining spiritual life is conditional on suffering loss. We cannot measure our lives in terms of gain. They must be measured in terms of loss. Our real capacity lies not in how much we retain, but in how much has been poured out. The power of love is attested by love's sacrifice. If our hearts are not separated from the love of the world, our soul life has yet to go through the cross. May the things of this world so lose their power over us that we do not in the slightest wish to be worldly. Nay, we even delight in not remaining in the world. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. 
But maybe you're sitting here now and you aren't feeling that much love for Christ. You're not quite ready to give up on the things of this world. That leaves us with two distinct possibilities. The first is that you have never personally put your trust in Christ. We call this being born again. You have never personally made a declaration of love to God. You haven't confessed your sins to God or submitted your life to him. You've been talking the talk. You've been religious. But you've never fallen in love with God. Your life is still your own. You've never actually experienced your own deep change of nature by the power of Christ. Henry Martin spoke of this change like this. The work is real. I can no more doubt it than I can my own existence. The whole current of my desires is altered. I am walking quite another way, though I am incessantly stumbling in that way. So it could be that this is a change you've never experienced. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Or secondly, maybe you're where I've been all too often. You've forgotten your first love. You've tasted. You've known a change, but it's old. It's dead now. You've known a heart for God. You've known a love that forsakes all others that radically changes and transforms. A love that brings life and brings joy, but that life has been stripped by the things of this world. Your heart's been bruised. Your heart's been broken by disillusionment. You've been torn in your pursuit of God and your pursuit of the world. And now find yourself empty and bled out. Longing and searching for life again. But regardless where you're at, there is a hope. The same spirit that brings life nourishes life. The same word that ignites love rekindles love. The same son of God who died that we might have life brings us out of our darkness into his amazing light. 1 John 1, 4, these things rewrite so our joy may be complete. We have people off to the side that desire to pray with you, and I'm going to ask them to come now. If you find yourself in the first number with the desire to have true life for the first time, I'm going to ask you to step out now. There is no shame. There is no condemnation. We rejoice with you. You can make your one you can make your way to the people on the side. They desire, they have a great desire to pray with you. If you find yourself in the second number, the answer is simple. The same Christ who brought you out of the darkness and into his light can take away the long dark night of your soul. Don't be content with being lukewarm. Engage in the pursuit Ignite a new passion for Christ. We've been talking about worship, prayer, and scripture. 
as some of the core values of the church. They are core values because submersion in those things brings life. This text, it's not about what we must give up. It's not about what we're running away from, but what we're running to or who we're running to. It's not a command concerning the loss of this world, but the promise of another. It's not a rule or law to bind us, but an act of obedience that frees us to live a life of love to God, both now and forever. Jesus said the thief comes to kill and destroy, but I come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. There is nothing this world possesses that can compare with the great love of God. The things of this world bring death. The things of God bring life eternal. So in closing, let us here at the mission make this our mission. Let us not love the world or the things in the world. Let us love God with all our heart. Let every room we enter be a sanctuary of love for God. Let everything we put our hands to be a sacrifice to God. Every meal a feast of love with God and every song a song of love to God. And if we find any desire, any lust for the things of this world, anything that is not of God, let us say with John, let us say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but thee, and on earth there is nothing that I desire besides thee. Lord Jesus, we love you. We want this to be our cry today. We're desperate for you, Jesus. We're tired of pursuing, of chasing the things that this world has. We're tired of going after those things that cannot and will not fulfill. Our desire is you, Jesus. We long to abide with you, to remain with you, to walk with you to a place we can't even imagine. Lord God, send your spirit. Send your Holy Spirit, Jesus, to convict us to change us, to transform us, to renew us to a life that only you can give. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening and God bless.